You know, it reminds me, just the noise of sitting down here. Someone sent me something yesterday about signs you know when you're aging, and one of them is coming in or out of a chair or making a noise. <laughs> those were knees. And, and as I was standing over, look at those chairs. That's a pretty low chair. I'm, pr I'm pretty sure the mic on, I'm going to make a noise. I've been super self-conscious, so thanks for making a noise before me. Well, I knew I could get into better. the chair. It's getting out of the chair. Getting out of might be, be a rest. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, you're going to hear a remarkable story told by two different employees with a shared experience. The opening of our first store in Puerto Rico, the unfortunate events that closed the store, and the new life and community they found as a result. It seems a bit cliche, but it feels like Nordstrom cares. They don't just care about the customer service. You can tell by my experience, they also care about their employees and it felt personal. You can go work for companies that could tell you a bunch of things, but what they actually do when it's meaningful and when it means the world to people that were struggling to even survive. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that is big, that is huge. But before that, listen in on my chat with President and CEO of Levi Strauss, Chip Burke. This year's Global Department Store Summit, a conference that brings together CEOs and senior department store executives from every continent to discuss pressing topics facing our industry, I had the great opportunity to get on stage and interview Chip Berg. Chip is an extremely talented guy with an impressive resume, holding many high-level leadership positions at Procter & Gamble, growing well-known brands like Swiffer, Old Spice, Gillette, and Folgers, just to name a few. More recently, after joining Levi Strauss in 2011, Chip took on the challenge of revitalizing the iconic but aging denim brand back into the cultural spotlight it once held. It's an insightful comeback story that will benefit any brand executive listening in. But aside from his commercial success, it was inspiring to hear Chip's unique perspective on the role of business in society. He has effectively used the platform afforded to him as president of one of the world's largest apparel brands to promote action on some of the most important social issues of our time. So let's get into it. Good morning. Uh, it's great to be here and in person. And uh, thank you to the Nordstroms for bringing everyone together. I think all of us recognize the challenges of uh, convening uh, retail leaders over the last couple of years. It's especially exciting for me to be part of this next conversation because just in the last few years, there have been enormous numbers of analysts and observers and writers and thinkers on retail who have pronounced department stores and brands really past their prime. And I think with both Nordstrom and Levi's, we see a department store and a brand very much in their prime, not just recent results, but over time. So uh, Pete, is the president and uh, chief brand officer of Nordstrom. And Chip uh, has been the president and CEO of Levi's for more than 10 years. So I'm really excited to be part of this. And I know we're gonna learn a lot from this conversation. So please join me in a warm welcome for Pete Nordstrom and Chip Berg. All right, well, Chip, you're so nice to, to join us. And I, I wanna really use this as an opportunity for you guys to tell your story, because I think it's a great one. And, and a good place to start is you just had an investor day. And I think that can give everyone a lot of context of the journey you've been on. And what was actually really exciting for me was the level of ambition of where you think you can go. Well, first of all, thanks, Pete, for having me here. And it's great to see so many folks here and to be back in person. Um, yeah, we just, you know, welcome to being a publicly traded company. We took the company public back in March of 2019. Uh, so this was our first investor day since the IPO. And we thought it was the right time to do it, despite all the craziness in the world and questions about the economy and everything else, because 
through the pandemic, uh, one of our objectives was to come out of the pandemic a much stronger company, and we've done that. And so at the investor day, we laid out an ambition to take the company from today, we're about $6 billion in sales, to between nine to $10 billion. And we're confident in our ability to do that for a couple of reasons, despite all the craziness again in the, in the economy. First, we have some tailwinds to our business, and you're seeing it as well. Um, there's been an accelerated trend change in casualization. That's true on a global basis. You know, it used to be in many parts of the world, you went into work in suits and ties. And as a result of the pandemic, one, people aren't going into work as much. We can talk about that. But I think two, this group is painfully aware of yes, that, those but trends. But two, uh, people can go back into work now dressed a little bit more casually. It's just a little bit more acceptable, not just here in the US, but around the world. And then the second big thing, which we drove as the category leader in denim, is there is a new denim cycle. So. The last denim cycle was over a decade ago. It actually preceded me at Levi Strauss, and it was driven by the women's skinny jean, which was driven by fabric innovation. And the new trend, also kind of accelerated by the pandemic, is a looser, baggier fit. And most of you are probably aware of it. A new fit in denim drives consumers to the store because they've got to update their wardrobe. The other great thing about a new denim silhouette is it drives tops, it drives footwear, it drives a whole lot of other categories. So it's, it's good not just for denim, but it's good for apparel in general. And as the category leader, we are a big believer in driving innovation and creating trends like this because now the category is growing faster than total apparel. So that gives us a great deal of confidence in the core of our business, which is still denim. Add to that, we also have added a new brand to our portfolio during the pandemic. We acquired a very small brand called Beyond Yoga, which competes in the premium athleisure performance athletic category, which is more than double the size of total denim. And the combination of all these factors give us a huge amount of confidence, plus just the fundamental strength of the Levi's brand today gives us a lot of confidence that we can take our ambition to something higher. Yeah, you know, and to me, that all seems plausible when I think about how you guys have been able to have a heritage brand essentially and leverage that fully in a way that keeps your brand relevant. Mm -hmm. How there's this whole new wave of really young people, they're buying it not because of their nostalgia, but just because it's cool. Yeah, so, I mean, part of the reason I joined the company, so I spent 28 years at Procter & Gamble. I'm a brand guy. I didn't grow up in apparel. I didn't grow up in retail. But I am fundamentally a brand guy. And when I got the call about the opportunity to be CEO at Levi's, I started doing my homework on the company. And the company had really struggled from the mid-90s until the end of the thousands, if you will, around 2010 and I joined the company in 2011. It lost its relevance with young consumers. It stopped innovating. It stopped connecting with consumers. It stopped listening to their consumer. And I have two boys, they're grown men, who today are 39 and 35. And when they were teenagers, Levi's wasn't even in their consideration set, let alone in their closet. The brand was just irrelevant to young consumers back in the 90s. So part of the reason I joined was this incredible opportunity. Here you had one of the world's most iconic brands, and yet the company was underperforming. So I just saw this enormous opportunity to make the brand the way it was when we were kids. And, and that was kind of the dream, was to come in and, and make the brand relevant and cool again. And so how do you do it? It's really, really hard. So when I joined the company, the average male consumer in the United States was 47 years old. For, for the Levi's brand. For the Levi's brand, 47-year-old consumer. The brand skewed heavily to men, heavily to denim bottoms, and heavily to the US and US wholesale. But the brand was skewing old, and you, know, you kind of do the math, and 20 years from now, those men will be dead or almost dead, and so will the brand. And, and that was kind of like not a place you want to be. And, and as a brand guy, you know, the health of brands, especially democratic brands like the Levi's brand, small d, you know, is really dependent on the young consumer. So part of the trick of 
making the brand relevant again was how do we reconnect with that young consumer without losing the old guys because they were printing the money for the company at that point in time. And so it was all about putting the brand back at the center of culture. And you know, to do that, to make a long story short, I think there were a couple of key things that we had to do. Number one, listen to the consumer and really understand what was the consumer looking for. What did we need to do to become more relevant to the consumer and how do we connect with that consumer better? The second big thing was to innovate. The company just hadn't innovated in well over a decade. I mean, it was one of the first things the company cut when it started to get into financial troubles. And one of the first decisions I made as the CEO was to open an innovation center about four blocks away from our office. And we've been there. We visited we've that last time. We it was been there, yeah. It's great. But, you know, innovation in this business is iterative. The designers and the merchants need to actually come in and feel the fabric and see a sample on a real body and, and tweak it and twist it. So driving innovation was a second key piece. Um, and then the third thing was branding, uh, you know, advertising, marketing to, to the younger consumer. And, we finally landed upon a campaign idea, which is called Live and Levi's, and we developed some great advertising. And Live and Levi's really captures the essence of what this brand is all about. I like to say everybody's got a Levi's story. So, you know, behind the scenes, we did a major restructure, cut a lot of costs, paid down a bunch of debt because that was a big problem, turned our balance sheet into an asset, and started investing back in the brand. And we did a football stadium. That sounds crazy, right? But we did a football stadium, Levi's Stadium down in Santa Clara where the 49ers play. 49ers, great San Francisco brand. Levi's, great San Francisco brand. The 49ers go all the way back to the gold rush. Levi Strauss has been 169 years. We go all the way back to the gold rush. Their mascot is Sourdough Sam, you know, a gold miner who now runs out onto the field wearing a pair of Levi's. Like, could you write a better story? Well, like, I don't know if you know this, my great-grandfather who founded this business was a miner. He came really? to this country from Sweden, he ended up making some money in Alaska mining for gold. Wow. I'm sure he wore Levi's, I'm pretty so sure. We, we, so we've got- I don't know that, but I'm guessing. We have real common roots, I'm yeah, sure he probably did. Yeah. yeah, so that's, I mean, that's how Levi Strauss started the business too, was understanding miners' needs and if you were a miner back in the day and you were mining up in Eureka, California, and you had to come back to San Francisco to get a new pair of pants, that was a week without any income. Right. You know, you, you weren't putting food on the table. So he came up with a stronger, sturdier pair of pants, and that's kind of what launched this category. So anyway, so we did all of that, and it, and it just it resonated with young consumers. Today, the average male consumer in the U.S. is in the low 30s. And that's because we haven't lost the old guys and we've attracted a lot of the new, younger consumers. You know, that, that's fascinating because we talk about this a lot when we're interacting with different brands and everyone's very interested in having a youthful image and, you know, what, what's the average age of your customers and all that. How did you literally do that? I, it, it, I think it brings me to my next question because you talk about contemporary culture out there in society, but... I think about it in terms of your internal culture and your guys' values and how they resonate with, with a modern customer. Yeah, for sure. And that was the other big thing that attracted me to the company, was the values of the company. I mean, this was a company that at the time had been around for about 158, 59 years. Now we've been around for 169 years. And if you think about it, I've worked at three places since I graduated from college, the U.S. Army, Procter & Gamble, and Levi Strauss. U.S. Army's been around for about 250 years. P&G's been around for about 190 years, and Levi Strauss 169 years. And the core things that makes them similar is their values. And it goes all the way back to the founder, Levi Strauss himself. The very first year he made a profit, he donated a percentage of the profit to a local charity. And he believed, and we have believed since the inception of this company, that businesses exist more than just to make a buck for the shareholder, that businesses exist to make a difference in the world, to make a difference in their community. And this company has a long track record of not being afraid to take stands on important social issues or to be out there. 
Um, we desegregated our factories in the Southeast 10 years before the Civil Rights Act. We were the first major company in the United States who offered healthcare benefits to same-sex partners. I could go on and on and on. So it, it is part of the DNA of this company. Um, we're all about doing the harder right over the easier wrong and really using our voice. And it halos over the Levi's brand. I mean, one, what the Levi's brand really stands for at the end of the day is authentic self-expression. So that is part of how we have reconnected. So even today, a, a letter went, well, we'll go to the Senate later today demanding Congress take action on ending the gun violence epidemic in this country. And I know we've got a lot of people, and it's, you know, this is, uh, it is a very fraught issue in this country, and to be super clear, this is not about repealing the Second Amendment or taking guns away from gun owners. It is about putting legislation in place, common sense laws that the vast majority of Americans support, because what's happening today is ripping this country apart. And How do you do that? I mean, because you mentioned your company is a Democratic company with small D, and the polarized nature of almost everything, everything. just cuts it literally in half. And we can't afford to cut our customer base in half, and I know you feel the same way. Tell yeah. me how, how you're able to be really authentic, like you guys are with your values, an expression of that in a way that's not unintentionally alienating customers. Yeah, and it is a, it is a tricky one, and I, it, I think this is one of the things that today make the CEO job so difficult, is we live in such a polarized world. Um, what got us into the whole gun issue was back in 2016, we had a weapon go off in our store. So here in the United States, for those of you who are from overseas, there are many, many states where a person can carry a weapon openly. And a customer came into our store and went into the fitting room to try on a new pair of pants and dropped his pants and the weapon went off. He shot himself in the foot um, and literally, and literally, I cannot make this up. Um, he literally shot himself in the foot, but it could have been one of my employees. It could have been a customer in our store. It could have been a customer's child in our store. And that was kind of, that was it. And we had store managers who were lobbying for us to have a policy that customers couldn't bring a weapon into our store, which Starbucks had already done and a number of other customers had already done. So and we do we do that now too. Yeah, we followed their playbook and just politely asked customers, you know, you don't need a weapon to try on a pair of jeans, leave your weapon at home or in, you know, locked in your car. And um, that kind of got us into it. And then when the Parkland shooting happened, we did some research with younger consumers. And what we discovered was amongst 18 to 30 year olds, the top two concerns here in the United States were number one, climate change, and number two, gun violence. And these are people, if you think about it, they grew up doing lockdown drills, facing this ever-present threat of potentially a, a shooter in their school. And it, it has shaped the young person's point of view about safety in this country. And so, after the Parkland shooting, we decided to weigh in a little bit more vociferously. And yeah, I got death threats. I had unmarked police in front of my house, um, but we were convinced, and we don't have a dog in the hunt. You know, we don't sell weapons, but we are all about trying to make the communities where our employees live and work safer. And, and that's what our focus really is. So we created a million dollar fund that we have used with nonprofit organizations, largely led by young people, students from Parkland, as well as a couple of other organizations. And we're trying to you know, drive change in this country to make this country safer. Well, look, we applaud that and appreciate the leadership position you're willing to take, because it takes some guts to do that. And uh, we pay close attention when you come out and and make those stands, and I think it gives the rest of us courage that you know we can do that too. Yeah, being the tip of the spear, we like to say when we lead, others follow, and I'd like to believe that CEOs can make a difference and get it over the line. Well, that's great. Again, we applaud what you're doing there. So we talked about things that are of 
importance and interest to young customers and it, and it goes way beyond just something that might be academically true. It actually shapes the way that they consume and, and how they act. And one of them was climate change. Can you talk a little bit about how you've evolved your brand and what you do to address that issue as well? Sure, so actually when we launched this innovation center, we basically said our framework for innovation is gonna be around sustainability. Great innovation happens when you have constraints. You know, if you just open your checkbook and say, go be innovative, you don't necessarily get great results. But if you say, let's go solve this problem, it kind of forces focus and discipline, I guess, around the innovation process. And so we said, we're gonna be all about sustainability. I mean, let's face it, the apparel industry is not necessarily a good guy when it comes to planet Earth. And all of us in the apparel industry really need to kind of double down on our responsibility to climate change. And so that's what we've really been focused on. And we've had a number of initiatives over the last couple of years, which, oh, by the way, as I said, this is number one on young people's agenda. So for our target customer, being a good guy and really trying to make a difference here helps drive the business. So we have done a whole bunch of things. We're very focused on water. Producing denim takes a lot of water. So of all the water that's consumed through the life cycle of a pair of jeans, which we've studied twice, we've done a real life cycle analysis of a pair of jeans, I will carry the quote, these jeans have never seen the inside of washing machine to my grave with me. It was misrepresented as I never wash my jeans. <laughs> it's not completely true, but I don't put my jeans in the washing machine because it overuses the amount of water that's required. So we've got a product called Waterless. We have figured out ways to produce jeans and about 90 plus percent of all of the jeans that we produce today use waterless technology which significantly reduces the amount of water that's required. We've innovated leveraging lasers to do a lot of the jeans finishing. That uses only recycled water and very, very few chemicals. I mean, that's the other thing. We've been very focused on reducing dangerous chemicals and this whole laser finishing concept came out of some innovation around eliminating bad chemicals from our supply chain. We've got fabric flexibility now, so we have worked with a manufacturer with some proprietary technology that takes hemp, which is a much more sustainable fiber than cotton. But if you've ever felt fabric made from hemp, it feels like burlap. It's very, very fibrous. So there is a supplier that we've worked with who has technology that cottonizes the hemp and makes it much softer. We blend that with cotton, and all of a sudden you have a pair of jeans that is far more sustainable than a pair of jeans made from 100% cotton. Yes, and, and then it has a great hand. And, and it feels good. great. Yeah. I mean, most, most people would never even know that it's not 100% cotton. And that is now a pretty significant part of our line. And just this season, we launched a pair of Levi's that is made with 50% organic cotton and 50% recycled denim fibers which has never been done before, but we're working again with a startup that has developed proprietary technology to take denim, recycle it, and spin it into new fiber, and it's flying. It's doing really well. It's also 100% recyclable, too. So it's got a great sustainability story, and I think it's got a ton of potential longer term. That's great. I want to shift gears a little bit, and I think this is something that all of us are wrestling with, and it's just the general nature of how a commercial relationship works between a, a brand like yours and a retailer like ours. You know, those lines have been blurred so much and the transactional nature of how that always exists in the past has evolved and changed. So I wanna know if you can talk to us a little bit, not only just the commercial range, but, but, but how you look at department stores, retailers like us as partners and what you're looking for in a good partnership. What can we do to be better partners? That's a great question. And I probably should have mentioned it when I talked about our investor day. We laid out our strategies and one of our strategies is direct to consumer first. So we're a retailer too. We operate our own retail stores. We have about 3,100 stores globally, of which we own about 1,100, but we also have very important wholesale relationships. Part of this is just about reach and access to the consumer. I mean, you guys can do the math. 3,100 stores doesn't cover the world. And even here in the United States, 
We have a lot of outlet doors, but we only have about 50 mainline doors. So we have, we have cities, literally cities, where we don't have any mainline doors. And so wholesale is a way for us to reach our customer, but we want it to be brand accretive. You know, we are about trying to make Levi's into more than just a denim brand, a true head-to-toe lifestyle brand, and customers and partners who can partner with us to bring that vision, if you will, to life in their stores. Yeah, so what does good look like to you? I mean, you, if you think about how that plays itself out. Your stores look pretty good. Well, that's nice of you to say, thank you. No, good, I mean, I, I, can, I can tell you what bad looks like. Bad looks like a nuclear bomb just hit the pad and there's no service on the floor and the product looks horrible and uh, there's confusion around pricing and confusion around the product on the floor. Good looks like a well-organized assortment that really does represent the brand, you know, featuring what's hot on the brand too. And, and we have a role to play in this, to be clear. You know, our sales teams really need to be leveraging what is working in the marketplace and working with our partners to make sure that we're really featuring the things that are doing really well in our business. So, you know, I talked about the denim cycle, for example. We need to be partnering with our customers to say, here it is, it's coming. You know, we're by far the denim category leader. We're number one globally. We're bigger than the two, three, and four companies combined. So if we say this is where we want to take the denim category, we can really take it there. And so this denim trend, we've been able to drive it so quickly because everybody jumped on board. You know, because if we had just done it in our stores, that wouldn't have been enough. It wouldn't have moved the needle. But by getting all of our customers to jump in at the same time, all of a sudden, what the consumer saw when they walked into the store was, oh my God, there's a new denim look. And I don't have that in my closet. I better buy some. Yeah. So my last question before we open up uh, questions for everyone else is, uh, you know, in the spirit of partnership, important part of what that is, just the reciprocity and an exchange of ideas. So I want to ask you, you as a person that is a keen observer of department stores and what we do, and you're a retailer yourself, what advice do you have for us about how we can continue to evolve in a way that's going to make us more relevant and more important to customers? Well, I think there are a couple of things. You know, the pandemic probably accelerated trends that were going to happen over the next decade and just compressed it into a couple of years, right? First, I think it is undeniable that the digital economy is here to stay. I think everybody has to figure out what role does e-commerce and digital play in their overall strategy, and then how do you play with your brand partners in in that respect. The second thing I would say, and we're working on this right now, and, and we've got a long way to go, but I think digitally transforming your business in every aspect of the business is, is where the future is going. And if, and if you're not already working on that, you're probably behind. And when I say digitally transforming, I'm talking about everything from you know, leveraging data science for demand and supply planning, leveraging it on how, how do we assort our stores, because I think another big trend, and we were talking about this earlier, is localizing assortment for the customer that is walking into that store. I think the days of having a standard national or standard regional assortment, those days are gone. You know, I've got a couple of stores in New York City and the customer in Soho is very different than the customer in Brooklyn, which is very different than the customer in Times Square, which is different than the customer at Hudson Yards. And we have to assort those stores very, very differently. And you can leverage data science and scraping the internet of all kinds of data to be really informed about how you do that. So I would say those are just off the top of my mind, a couple of the big things. Yeah. Thank you. All right, Matt, we'll let you uh, yes, I forgot. see some thanks questions. For, thanks for the reminder that I was supposed to play traffic cop here. <laughs> uh, so, so there are a couple of microphones out there, as you saw in the earlier session. So if you want to ask a question, just stand up and, and wave for a microphone. I thought I would just start as people think about a question and ask both of you uh, your perspective. We talked a little bit when we got started about how customers are doing in the face of the current transformation in the economy and as we come out of the pandemic and with inflation challenges and people at different income levels as benefits and uh, things happen. And and of course, the whole workforce issue of the workforce shortage in a lot of places 
your businesses had to be closed. The, store, the doors were closed, your stores were closed. So as you think about being empathetic going forward, what do you think the future looks like for return to office, return to downtowns? Well, you know, I think it comes back to about how communication is such an important part about how to get a company aligned around a sense of purpose and mission and all that stuff. And there's just no doubt a physical presence is part of the recipe that makes for good communication. And so we're gonna try to find that balance. You know, it's not gonna go back to what it was before. It's hard to imagine that's true. People have different needs and what have you, and I think we want to be responsive to that and have a degree of flexibility, but part of that recipe is going to be how we work together. So I think it starts with, if you're going to be together, there should be some intentionality about what that means and, and how we work, not just everyone come in so that they all be on their computer screen all day doing emails. That's, that's probably not the best thing. So just being more intentional and purposeful about how we meet, when we meet. And then I guess the last thing I'd say about that we're a big company with all kinds of different jobs, and they all have different right. needs. And so it's got to be really more about the job. And then I think we just have to be explicit about what those expectations are so people can lead their lives. They can plan around that. I mean, no doubt for our business, we have to live in this world too, particularly in Seattle. Yeah. Or, you know, Microsoft right. here, Amazon, the different people. They may have a different culture and a different way of working, but that impacts expectations about how we operate as an employer. Yeah, I think you have the same thing. Context, context really matters. Yeah, it does and, now. And that way it didn't before. If anybody has this figured out, can you just grab me before I take <laughs> off? Because I think we're all trying to figure it out. It is arguably one of the great social experiments of our time. I'm very much where Pete is. Um, talk about the great resignation and the talent wars that exist today. We're headquartered in San Francisco and now the heart of Silicon Valley. People can go and work for Apple or Google or Facebook or Salesforce or whatever. They're all right down the street. And so I think flexibility is the operative word. Uh, more than half of my employees live in the East Bay and they're commuting 60 to 90 minutes each way. And it's hard to argue with the results that we had during the pandemic. You know, we did emerge from the pandemic, a much stronger company, and everybody was working from home doing it. What I worry about is I just think back to when I was young in my career, I didn't learn in the meeting with the big boss. It was the meeting before the meeting. It was the debrief after the meeting. It was, it was the informal stuff. It was, you know, talking to your colleagues at the same level, working on a different business. That just doesn't happen in a world of Zoom or Microsoft Teams. And that's my worry is kind of what's the longer term implications of this. So what we're trying to do is, make, I, mean, I totally agree with what Pete said, like it doesn't make any sense to come into the office and spend all day on a Microsoft Teams meeting. Like, as great as Teams is, Microsoft. as great as Microsoft. the office to collaborate, Shelly's to, here. to yeah. innovate, to be with your teammates. And we're trying to create that kind of environment. So we're in the process of renegotiating our lease. We're keeping our entire office, but we're gonna completely reorganize the way it's set up. And it's gonna be for collaboration. There are gonna be fewer offices and desks and much more conference rooms and showrooms and floor space so that the merchants can lay product on the floor and just much more targeted towards collaboration and work. Yeah, if people are gonna come in, let's make it make for it, something productive other than just to be there to be exactly. there. Exactly. Much more willingness, I think, to yeah. accept that, that possibility. Do we have someone that's got a, a question? There's a question out here. Hi, Chip, Nagish from India. Hi, Nagish. Uh, it looks like you really drive the organization with a sense of purpose, but how do you drive it through the leadership in 110 countries? Yeah, it's, um, I, I think, being really, really clear about the company's strategy and just always talking about the company's values is how you embed it you know, through the organization. And I sometimes say my real role is chief values officer, but then your actions have to be consistent with your words. You know, always trying to do the right thing, the harder right over the easier wrong, um, being really clear about the decisions that you're making. You know, if I go back to the pandemic, you know, the very first thing we said is, we're gonna put the health and safety and wellness of our employees and our customers above all else. I dialed up how much I was in touch with the organization during that period of time. And I shared you know, every step along the way with all of the uncertainty and all the murkiness during the pandemic, every step of the way, what we were doing and why we were doing it. 
and it just built a lot of trust. You know, I also would say that as a leader, I had to change a lot through that crazy period of time when there was lockdowns and a lot of uncertainty and stores closed and everything else. You know, I, I developed a much greater sense of empathy for the organization and the, the struggles that they were, you know, when you, when you go from having meetings in a conference room to all of a sudden you're zooming into people's kitchen or bedrooms and they've, you know, somebody's got their child tugging on their arm saying, I can't get on the iPad, you know, to go to school. It, it, it makes you a different leader and puts you much more in touch with the organization. And so I, I think people saw me in a different light during that period of time. And I'm probably a different leader today than I was three years ago as a result of that. So I think all of those things really contribute to building culture. But the important thing is consistency and just always being consistent about how you talk about the values, how you show up as an individual and how the company shows up no matter where it is in the world. And, and that puts pennies in the bank with the organization. It puts pennies in the bank with the customer as well. That sounds right. Well, those are things that both Nordstrom and Levi's keep doing very, very well. So Pete and uh, Chip, thank you both. What a great session. Please join me in thanking Chip and Pete. Thank you, Pete. Now we're going to switch gears and hear a pretty remarkable story told from the perspective of two different employees, Manolo Gonzalez and Joey Capo, both present at one of our more unique and exciting store openings in Puerto Rico, and both dramatically affected by the devastating events that led to the closing of that store only a few years later. The resilience of these two employees and many others around them stands as a heartening example of hope through the worst of situations. And we're proud to have played some part in offering relief as each found their way back to satisfying careers and a new personal life in the United States. So it's, Manolo, it's been fun to be here in your store here at Merrick Park in Florida, beautiful Miami. And uh, it's such an interesting collection of people that have, you know, all have their own unique story. And you have yours, too. I mean, yours is maybe one of the more unique journeys that someone's had as a store manager in our company. So why don't you talk a little bit about how it was that you came to be at Nordstrom? So back in 2011, I was uh, in Puerto Rico managing the largest penny store in the entire fleet. And one day I get this call from the mall developer manager that was opening the mall of San Juan. And he said, hey, we know about you because of the great standards you have in this store. And we have heard that the Nordstrom family, the Nordstrom people want to talk to you. And I was like, the Nordstrom people, what do they want to talk to me about? And I was like, we're going to be working with them to open a store over here in San Juan. I was like, oh yeah, well, that idea I wasn't aware of. So. I mean, I'm interested in, in getting to know a little bit of that. So they say, well, they're going to be visiting town soon. We'll set up something with you. So I've got Joey Kappa with me here. I'm at the Domain Store in Austin, Texas. And we have met before because we met at, when we opened the Puerto Rico store. Yes. Why don't you tell me a little bit about kind of how you got your start with us and, and, and kind of where that brings you to today? Yeah. Um, I had recently left the Army 2015, um, and I saw the opportunity, to, and I heard great things about you guys as a retailer. And I studied the whole 1901, all the stories. Oh, you and did? I, yeah, I, you, I checked it out. You studied us. Yeah. <laughs> I checked you it out. You probably did well in the job interview, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I checked it out, and, and the culture of the store... And I was like, let's do this. Let's try this out. So the thing is, I didn't know much about Nordstrom. So I decided to travel to the state to see the stores because I was like, I've never actually been to a Nordstrom store. been to many others, but not to one. So I came to Florida, saw a couple of stores, and I was very surprised at one thing. Everything I saw in the Nordstrom store was very calm. And then I started studying the culture and all that. And that's what called my attention. And then, obviously, the opportunity came to open a market. That was something I always wanted to do in my career. I started recruiting people. I started getting people on board on the whole service thing. It was like, do you guys want to work in a place that can serve people to a next level? Because that's what we're all about. We really want to give people great experiences. 
And that's how we started in Puerto Rico. So tell me about that. We were open there, gosh, handful of years yes. until things changed in Puerto Rico. So why don't you talk a little bit about how that went? Um, so we opened in 2015, which was an amazing experience opening a store. Very invigorating. Yeah, that was a fun one. Yeah, it was a very fun experience. And then uh, in 2017, we had Hurricane Irma and Hurricane Maria, uh, like, a week apart. So, but you grew up in Puerto Rico. I mean, you have hurricanes there. Oh, but, yeah. But, but this was different, right? This, this was worse than This normal? was one of the worst, not just because of the category of the hurricane, but the time span where two hurricanes happened. That was intense. I had lived two hurricanes before this one. And... I knew it was different because I had never seen anything like that. And it, it was it was a really rough night. The worst thing that happened was it came through the night. So I remember I spent the last, probably the last heaviest hour of the hurricane just tying a rope to one of the doors, the glass doors that I had in the house so that it wouldn't open. Because if, we, if that thing would have opened, everything inside my house was gonna fly out. So I, I roped myself to a door and I roped myself to a, a stuff I have in the wall and that's why I spent an hour trying to keep that door oh open while I have my wife and my kids secure in a room. While all of that was happening, some kind of object flew from another house and hit one of the windows and blew up all the glass windows. So I had to untie myself from the rope, tie the rope again to another thing and go secure that whole window so the water wouldn't start flowing the house. Me, I lived, I personally lived by the beach, so my house got flooded, about three feet of water. So I was like, at that point, I had lost everything. The second day was when we could actually get out, because the problem was all the roads were obstructed. There was no way to drive anywhere. How long did it take until you found out what was going on at work? Two days. Came back two days later and found half of the store floated, and I couldn't understand it because I have never seen that happen before. Gibson board walls have fallen. I mean, dude, it was a lot of debris on the store. But after, I don't know, you would remember better than me. It was maybe about a month, it was like, now all the mold and everything set in. And then it became a whole different ball game, right? That's what drove the decision to close the store. The amount of mold that started piling in tight, because the problem was the island whole power capability got lost. So we couldn't restart anything to have the air circulate in the store. So the conditions became unsustainable. So, so people couldn't be in there? At all, and that's when uh, we made the decision that we were gonna have to close the store. And that was probably the time, the one time that I learned what this company was all about. It was really where Nordstrom came through for, for a lot of employees and donated food, donated clothes, paid our salaries for a couple of months. Yeah, we were closed for a long time. Yeah, and I remember in one of the instances, like we did the meeting, like a big meeting at the mall, and I remember that you guys brought your private jet and said whoever wanted to leave, they could. And they went to Miami to get supplies and things like that. So that experience with Nordstrom, seeing how they took care of us, that's really one of the things that made me stay and love it. We had over 200 employees and we had to give them the tough decision that we had come to a conclusion that we couldn't run the store anymore. But the opportunity arose from our company finding options for our people. And we got told, hey, whoever wants to come to the mainland out of the 200 people, we will take them. And we will take them in leadership roles, we will take them in sailing roles, we'll take them in anything. And our people were shocked at that because the culture in the island is not that way. The other companies I work, they they never treated the Puerto Rican people the same way as they treat people in the States. They were thought as less for some weird reason. And our company was totally different. We, we, are, we were embracing people. We were telling them, hey, we want you to be here. And there was opportunities to transfer. A lot of them were in cold places, which I wasn't cool with. <laughs> like what? Like where did they <laughs> Like Colorado. And at the time, there was a snowstorm. <laughs> Not uh, cool. No, okay. no, Pennsylvania was like, they all, I was like, no. <laughs> and people kept telling me, Austin is so cool. Move to Austin. It's a great place. It's going to be a lot of fun. And I was like, how's the weather? <laughs> I was like, that was like my peak. 
piece of the puzzle that I knew. How's the weather? So how many people ended up transferring to the United States? So over a hundred people ended up coming. More half the people. More than half the people. And including you. Including me. So you me. lived your whole life there in Puerto Rico. You established a reputation and you've done well there. And you said, okay, I'm going to move to the United States and uh, work at Nordstrom? And I did that along with six of our leaders who ended up going to all kinds of places. We had leaders that went to the West Coast and went in some of the stores there. We had leaders that went to the Texas market. We had leaders who went to the Northeast market and several of them that came to the Florida area. So you ended up in Austin, Texas, but you don't have family or friends here. You just moved here um, completely on your own? I, I moved completely on my own. Nordstrom also helped with that at the time. And, and that was great. It turns out that a lot of the crew members that were in Puerto Rico ended up here. And when I came oh, really? here for the first time, I saw him like- So like people you work with at Nordstrom yeah. Puerto Rico. So you have your little like have, family here, right? Yeah, I Nordstrom did. Nordstrom family, oh, that's great. So what kind of made the decision for you? What, what helped make that decision that you were willing to I always that? wanted to come to a state to prove that point, to prove that somebody from Puerto Rico could be as good as anybody from the States. And that's my credo has always been all my life. I didn't feel like I was better than anybody, but I wasn't worse than anybody either. I said, if anybody could do it, I could do it. And I wanted to prove that. I, I felt like by giving my team the ability to move on with me, accomplished a lot for me. Because I wouldn't have felt good if just me would have come. I wanted right. my team to get that experience. And the one thing I will say more than that is, not only that the over 100 people came, but the Nordstrom company did something that I had never heard anybody ever done in my life, in any retail or any industry. Whoever could come to the States but could not work in a Nordstrom store because their families were stuck in a places that we didn't have any store, let's say in Wyoming or places like that where we didn't have any store, the company offered to pay them $1,000 to relocate, just to help them. So we help people relocate even if they weren't gonna come. Even if they were gonna work for somebody else. Yeah. When I tell that to my friends, they think we're crazy. And I tell <laughs> them, we're not, we're all about people. That's where we are. So okay, you came from Puerto Rico and I mean, you got the devastating stuff happened there with mm -hmm. the hurricane. And I can only imagine, aside from personally, that being challenged and moving to a new place and all this, I mean, having to kind of start all over again, I mean, even like financially. So I mean, you, you, before we got started, you talked about you just recently bought a home, which is fantastic. So, yes. So tell us about that journey. I mean, do, were you like super purposeful? I'm saving up and here's what I'm going to do. And I did want to start growing. I was like, one of the things after I went through all of that, of losing everything, I was like, okay, I gotta move with a purpose. I was like, when I get there, it's not just about work. You gotta sort of grow yourself and grow for your family. And I wanted to also leave generational wealth for my family, which is something that is really hard to come by, especially when you are a POC. So tell me about you know how you approach your job and kind of what brings you joy and satisfaction in your job every day. Developing people. That's the most important thing for me. I. My biggest pride is giving people opportunity. And I would say in the last four months in this store, we actually promoted 11 people to leaders in different rack stores, That's in great. the other full line stores. Mm -hmm. And when I go home and I feel like I have given other people opportunities to continue growing their careers and bring more stability to their families and, and, and be able to support their kids better, the more ones they want to have kids, it really makes me happy. And I think that's the biggest thing I can do to, in any kind of job is leave it better than founder in the people side where people are getting better opportunities and being able to, to go other places that they wouldn't have thought they had the ability to do when they started in this job here. Well, you're a good guy, Manolo. I'm glad you're here. You're a good leader. It's it's fun being your story. Obviously, it's it's working. You've got a great spirit here, and you guys are having good results too. So, thank you for all of that. Thank you so much for being here. So, what feedback do you have for me? Like, you know, you, you're out here doing the job. What, what would you take based on your learnings as something important to work on? As of what I experienced today, it feels like you're doing it, which is listening to us taking the time to, you know, take notes and listen to what could be improved for a life at work. And, and maybe, I don't know how often you go back on the floor, just like revisit those memories by going back on the floor and experience what we experienced today. I think that is my best advice because I think it gives you a wider view of what we go through and a compassion 
for yeah. what we do. Yeah. Well, you know, we need it. <laughs> I can tell you it provides clarity to it. If my dad were sitting here listening to this, he would love what you just said because his thing for me was always like, all the answers are on the floor. Mm. You know, all this stuff happens in a big, complicated business like ours, but where the rubber meets the road, where it really happens is with customers in a yes. store. So that's really good advice for me, and I appreciate it. Well, look at Joey. It's really nice to catch up with you. I yeah. appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. And I also appreciate the job that you do. And um, I think it says a lot about you that when I asked your store manager, who in the store should I talk to? There was like no hesitation. It's Joey Capo. So you, you're doing a great job. And thank you for all that. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Okay, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcast, where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom, so if you have a story about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you just might hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy, drop us a line and be part of the Nordipod. And make sure to tune in next time as we uncover the facts behind Nordstrom's most widely shared customer service legend, the tire story. When the gentleman came in with two tires, it was winter time. I remember that because a really popular fashion was leather down-filled coats. We had a round of them right at the front entrance. So as he came down the stairs and I could see him carrying these tires, of course, my first reaction was, wait a minute, well, I wanted him to just stop where he was and share that I think he's in the wrong place. But he was certain that he bought those tires in this building. You're not going to want to miss this one. We managed to track down the actual employee that took the return for the tires in Fairbanks, Alaska back in 1979. You better believe it, folks. The tire story is true. So join us next time on the Nordy Pod. Mm-hmm.